Hi, everyone, and welcome back to How to College for First Gents, our podcast where we get together with fellow first-generation college students to talk about their background and the decisions they, ma- they made and what led them to be here today. On today's episode, we will be chatting with one of my good friends, Sydney Den, who will talk to us about what process she took to be able to figure out if the law profession was right for her. She'll talk about the questions she asked, how she built her network. We'll talk about how law school was for her and how she decided what type of law she wanted to do and practice. Lastly, we will finish with what she actually does as a litigator. We hope this episode gives you all a good perspective, especially for those that are thinking about law school. Don't hesitate to reach out to Cindy as she is a great resource. And without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Cindy. Welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you. So why don't we begin by you telling the audience a bit about yourself? Well, hi, everyone. My name is Cindy, and I grew up in Houston, Texas. My parents are refugees from Vietnam, and so I, you know, essentially am the first-generation college student and first-generation professional. I went to Springwoods High School in the Spring Branch District and then went on to study at Rice University, studying sociology and health policy. And then after that, I decided to do a joint degree in law and public policy when I graduated from law school at UC Berkeley in California and the Harvard Kennedy School for a master's in public administration. And now I'm back in Houston working at a law firm in downtown called Mayor Brown doing civil litigation. Awesome. Let's go ahead and unpack a little bit of your amazing resume. So why don't we begin perhaps in your college career? So at what point did you decide, if you decided at any point, I don't know if you can recall that moment, that you were actually interested in law? And then were there any specific classes that maybe got your interest, that sparked your interest a little bit more? Right. I I think it's probably better to ask the question of what skill sets were you interested in while you were in college? Because that tends to help you decide on which career you can end up with. And so for me, I have was always a fan of my social studies courses in high school. And then in college, I studied sociology, where I focused on racial health disparities and other things that impact our lives that are based on where we live, how we grow up, and what resources are available to us. And that got me interested because most of my courses were writing courses. So at the end of the semester, my final would be a 20-page paper for example, or a a study in one particular topic, like what are the the differences between access to healthcare amongst Asian Americans and Latinos? So that to me was a telltale sign that this is a skill set that I would want to continue on. I'm not a big fan of numbers. And so, you know, I didn't take any math courses besides statistics that were required for graduation. And, you know, I, I liked the area of health, but I wasn't keen on the hard sciences. So I knew I wanted to do something where I was advocating for better health outcomes for people. And so 
my thought process was, you know, maybe I could become somebody who's an advocate, works on Capitol Hill, you know, work with a elected official and be the person that focuses on their health care issues. But when I started looking around at the people who are in those roles, I realized that most of them are just folks who have an interest or knew someone who got to that position. They didn't require in a higher degree besides college. But the people who had law degrees who also did this work were able to do both advocating for a new law, for example, as well as writing to the courts to rectify something. Like So I'll give you an example in the immigration sense. Uh, someone who works at a nonprofit can be the advocate. They can be the one that shares the stories and tell the elected officials why this is an important bill. But someone with a law degree could also do that and be the lawyer for that particular individual, you know, file something in court and sign their name as the attorney. So that opened up another skill set that I was interested in. And I also was doing something similar for my family. My parents needed help navigating the healthcare system. I remember there was a particular procedure they had done and the insurance company denied paying for it. And so I wrote a little letter to the insurance company asking them, explaining why we decided that this would be covered under our insurance and it got denied. And then I went through the appeal process. I wrote another letter to the next level and it was approved. And so for me, that was very fulfilling. It was satisfying to be able to help someone, especially my own family, navigate this process. And being a lawyer is essentially that. You're helping someone navigate the legal process. It's definitely a new language you have to learn. For example, the word brief isn't the same sense of what you you and I think brief means short. Not a brief is a, a document you send to the court. It's usually 20 pages. It's not really brief, but it explains everything to the court about why your client should win the case. You know, other so it, it is a new language and going to law school helps you learn that language. So what I hear from you, Sydney, is instead of asking what I want to do with my future, you asked what skills would I like to have? What skills do I have? And what interests me? And I, and I think that those are very good questions, especially as you begin to think about what does my future career look like? What I find really interesting about the story you just mentioned is that in many ways, many of us who come from immigrant backgrounds, we've had to be pseudo lawyers for our families without law, law degrees because of everything you just mentioned, right? Like growing up, I also was like looking up laws and looking up legislation without a law degree. So what I find fascinating is that you took that one instance in your life and it kind of clicked for you and you said, well, this is really interesting. I think I might want to do this for a living. And then you sort of began to connect the dots. But I think though, what you said is that you would like the feeling of getting something accomplished and getting something done for your family. And, and, and again, it's not necessarily that that's a skill set, but it's a feeling that you get as you explore what careers you might want to do in the future. That's right, Norma. And I also think it doesn't have to be something that comes easily, right? So I'll give you an example for lawyers. What you see on TV is usually the, the loud, aggressive lawyer who's a shark in the courtroom. Those lawyers do exist, but they are not necessarily the best lawyers. In my work, for example, the person who writes really well tends to have better outcomes in court because it's not always all about the oral argument component. It's not the stand-up time in court that wins the case. It's the the well-researched brief, the case law that came 
came before you and how you apply that to your set of facts. So having a, a skill set where you may be interested in the research reporting or the, the writing component is is just as helpful as being able to say it orally. I also had a course in college. It was an intro to law course. And I know not many schools have that, but this course was particularly special to me because it was my best course, my favorite one, but also my worst one. And I'll tell you more about it because the, for the first semester, I was terrified of this class. It was a three-hour course in the evening with a lawyer who was a prosecutor, and he had a knack for picking on me for all the questions. And so he used the Socratic method, which is asking questions until you come up with the answer. So I had to be extra prepared for this course, you know, read my cases carefully, but still, even after this preparation, I felt nervous. I was intimidated and I thought, you know, maybe this is not for me. If I have all these negative feelings in my body, why would I want to be a lawyer and be terrified every day? But it turned out that I was terrified because I was nervous about being saying something embarrassing in front of my classmates. And in the end, you know, after more practice, I just kind of, you know, shrugged my shoulders and said, you know, I don't know this, but I'm going to just try and answer this question. And then at the end of the semester, we had a final and the final was a mock trial. And the case itself got me very interested in it because it happened to involve a young man who was accused of a crime and was later questioned at the police department and he didn't know English very well. He spoke mostly Spanish and he was asked the Miranda rights, you know, the, the same questions you see on TV where the police officers ask, you have the right to remain silent, anything you say can be used against you in court, you have the right to an attorney, and if you can't afford one, one will be provided for you. But TV shows always cut off the last part of it, which is, do you understand the rights I've read to you? And do you wish to speak to me? Those two questions are important because it, you have to make sure that the person understands that these are their rights and then and they keep on speaking afterwards then they waive those rights they you know you if, if you don't want to speak you have to say I, I want an attorney or I don't want to talk to you you know say something to to let them know that you're you're invoking your your fifth amendment rights but this individual just kept on nodding and you know there is no clear you know answer to see if he actually understood what we were saying before he spoke and so I took this mock case and spend a lot of time on weekends and wanted to really beef it up and find the right cases to kind of advocate for this individual. And I remember there was one Friday where there was this indie band that was coming to Rice and they were going to perform. And I was so excited for this. And right before that, I was deep in the middle of like researching, going on this rabbit hole and I missed the concert. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself later, wow, if I'm willing to miss this concert for this case, maybe I should become a lawyer. You know, I'm, I'm dedicating so much time to this because I really want to see this individual see, seek justice. And it, it dawned on me that this is probably something I want to pursue, at least, you know, consider it. And it got me interested in asking more questions to other attorneys to see what they do and find out whether that's the right path for me. There are so many things about what you just said that I want to make sure we elevate. So on the one hand, I think that you are fueled by a thirst of justice and ensuring that people have the equitable representation that they deserve. Because at the end of the day, if you were to ask me, can you describe what a lawyer does? I think that's it. What I just said. 
ensuring that people have the correct representation because it, it is life and death in many instances. It is either you're guilty or you are not guilty and it has repercussions for every other aspect of your life. So to me, it is one of the most important professions, not just because, as you know, of my immigration status, but because it is they are it is like one person that can help you essentially transform the rest of your life. And I think that's sort of what you saw in in this individual. But I also want to highlight that you just said it was not easy. And it does require you to be out of your comfort zone. But maybe that's even what appealed you to it. And then the third thing that I took from what you just said is that you asked a lot of questions. And I think that is one thing I would encourage all of our first generation college students out there who are interested in being lawyers is that you ask everyone in anyone you might know just sit down with them for 10 minutes and tell me what do you do on an on an actual daily basis like what does your day look like and and maybe we can go there but but before we talk about what it is that you actually do on a daily basis i would love to just hear your thought process on what schools what law schools did you decide to apply and then you mentioned that you did a joint degree so most people that are lawyers do their just do their law degree but in your case you did a law degree and then you did a master's in public administration so i'd love to hear your thought process there Sure. So I'll I'll step back and continue about the topic of asking questions. I think the difference between a first-generation professional and someone who's been in a family of lawyers is that they already have people they can ask questions to. So if your parents were lawyers, most likely they'll have friends who are lawyers and that person will probably grow up with, you know, Uncle Sam coming by or Aunt Linda coming by who, you know, are lawyers in different professions. So I I recommend, you know, learning the art of asking someone to coffee. This is something that most people and most professionals are open to the idea of, oh, let's spend 30 minutes over coffee talking about what I do or what my careers were. And you may get a lot of different advice. And for example, I got advice all the way from don't go to law school all the way to, yeah, go to law school and also pursue two degrees too. So it's a wide spectrum. And I I think, you know, having so many different data points, it's helpful. For example, the person who told me not to go to law school said, you know, don't go to law school if you don't know why you're going to law school. A lot of people do it because they have nothing else better to do or to appease their parents or do something because they're like, you know, I just graduated and I really have no idea what I'm doing afterwards. So I'll just apply for fun. But that's going to be a very expensive and long, arduous journey because, you know, it's it's not easy. As I mentioned before, there, there are going to be some moments where it makes you frustrated and you're like, I'm reading these cases, but I just don't click it right away. But someone who knows why they're going to law school, I will see that light at the end of the tunnel and just go with it. But there's also some benefit waiting too, because I had classmates who had different careers before they became lawyers. Some were commercial fishermen, some were teachers, and they came with a lot of different experiences to share in the classroom too. I remember going to a property law class and they were talking about mortgages and I I still was scratching my head, what's a mortgage? And the person next to me, you know, had already bought a house, was, you know, in their second career and they were explaining to me and I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's a loan. But I didn't know what that was because I hadn't gone to that part of my life yet. At the same time, the person who said, go to law school and pursue joint degrees, you know, really saw potential in me. And she said, you know, you may be the only woman, the only person of color in a room, or maybe both. So it pays to be well-credentialed. So I ended up 
pursuing law school and public administration and found schools that offered both. So for example, University of Texas offers a joint degree program between the law school and the LBJ School of Public Affairs. The same with UC Berkeley, UCLA, Harvard, and you know, these were the schools I, I prioritized. And for my joint degree, I paired it up with two different schools, the Harvard Kennedy School and the University of California at Berkeley. And you may be wondering, how do you go to schools on two different coasts? <laughs> well, luckily, those two schools already had a partnership. So I applied separately to both schools using most the same essays and letters of recommendation. You know, I'm trying to capitalize on, on that. And then when I got my admissions letters, I, you know, told the schools I'm going to be pursuing this joint degree and ended up going to Boston for a year and then Berkeley for two years. And then my last year of school, I did one semester in each program. So I graduated two degrees in 2016 and, you know, saved a year of school. So normally law school's three years. I did it in two and a half. And normally a master's program is two years, but I did it in a year and a half. It was probably my best decision because I got to see both coasts and finally got out of Texas. And, you know, got to live my life and figure out, you know, where do I want to end up afterwards? And it turns out I ended up back in Texas. You know, with this skill set, I wanted to go back home and really help the community I grew up in. And, I'm re- and we're all really happy that you are back in Houston <laughs> for selfish reasons. But it is amazing the trajectory that you have taken. And, and so at, at the end of the day, we just boiled it down. For you, it had to do with acquiring two different sets of skills in two different, very different places. And and you did go to law school in California, but I'm sure most of our listeners know that once you go to law school, you have to take an exam called the bar, which essentially allows you to practice in that state. And you decided that you were not going to do that in California, correct? So instead, you came and took it here in Texas. So can you tell me a little bit about, if, even if you went to school in another state, were you still prepared to take the bar here in Texas and, and sort of what happened there? Right. So a lot of schools don't really offer courses that prepare you for the bar exam. Like they offer general courses like criminal law and evidence that are particularly helpful, but there are some state-specific things that you have to learn. So similar to how there are these test prep courses for the SATs and the LSATs, I took a test prep course in the summer right before I took the bar exam. And that kind of filled in the gaps for me, especially for Texas law that I was not familiar with. But in law school, and this is probably one of the advices I I received that I also believe is true, that you should go to the best law school you can get into because it's very prestige heavy. So they have rankings out there, whereas if you go to a top 14 school, you pretty much have a better chance of getting a job afterwards because a lot of employers want to hire the best of the best and they will te- they tend to go to the bigger schools. So I, if you, you know, ended up applying to law school and in that cycle, you didn't get to the top schools you wanted to and the other option would be going to an unaccredited online course, I don't know if that would be a worthwhile adventure because afterwards you have a fancy degree but no employment opportunities. 
So it, it really pays well to go into a higher ranked school. Even if you end up in the middle of the pack somewhere, you have that name attached to your resume of, of that school. So it, it gives you a leg up. And having gone to you know Berkeley, which is another top 14 school, I had an easier chance of interviewing in Texas. So even though none of the employers that I interviewed with came to my school to recruit, you know, I sent them my resume anyways, and they emailed me back with an interview. And so it's probably better to go to a school that will put you in a position to get you that next job because you don't want to be an attorney without any clients, right? You want to be an attorney that has the opportunity to pick your choosing, whether you go to public interests or private law firms, they all want to pick the, the brightest students out there. So then let's go ahead and, and dig into that last step you just mentioned. So you go to law school, you take this we haven't, and, we, and by the way, we haven't even covered what you learned in law school, but we, there's just so much to cover. So we'll proceed. You went to law school, you took this exam, you passed it, and now you have many roads that you are able to take. So you mentioned you have private law, you have public law. So can you just give me like a quick overview? And I know there's, I'm sure there's a billion types of lawyers you could have, just like there's a billion types of consultants you can have. But if you, if you could just give us an overview of like, maybe like the top two or three law careers that people take and which one you decided to go for. So there's two big categories of law. There's the transactional side, also known as corporate. And then there's litigation, which is ones you commonly see on TV, where there's somebody in court, they're standing up and saying some speech <laughs> and they're objecting. That's the kind of law I do. I do civil litigation, which is also another tree branch there. There's civil litigation and there's criminal law. And civil litigation is mainly asking for something that doesn't require someone to go to jail. So it's usually breach of contract or asking the court to file an injunction to force a party to do something or not do something. That's the world I live in. And it's probably the one you see most in pop culture. But then there's also the transactional side where there's lawyers who deal with these contracts or writing it up or trying to merge companies together. So there's going to be a lot of paperwork back and forth between one company's attorneys and the other company's set of attorneys. So their end goal is to create something where both sides have negotiated terms and they work with a lot of the business folks at the companies too, so non-lawyers. Whereas I, instead of the litigation, primarily work with other lawyers from the other side of the of the bench. So that's kind of the big overarching view. And then I'll stop there and just pause in case you have other follow-up questions. So then how, I, and I'd love to just hear your thoughts here, because I know that a lot of people have many different opinions on this. Your heart has always been in the public sector, right? Did you venture into the private sector? And if so, maybe what were some of the decisions there that led you to that? Sure. I, I first started as a law clerk to a judge. And this is something I did not know before starting law school. It's something called a clerkship. And it's very prestigious if you wanted to go to either the public or private sector afterwards. Because you are the right-hand man or woman for the judge. You're ghostwriting the decisions that the court issues. So if, let's say, a case between company A and company B, and company B wins, I'm writing why company B wins. You know, for these reasons, based on these legal 
cases that came before us. And here's the order. Company B, you get X dollars. And that is a very important skill set to have if you're in litigation, but it opens doors to both the public and private sector. So after I finished my year clerking with a judge in Houston, I was presented with the opportunity to go either apply for another fellowship program to go in the public sector or go to a law firm that I interned with before. And I decided to go to the private sector route first, primarily because they have like a dedicated program where you're kind of getting trained from year one through year 10, you know, and you also get paid a lot more money than the public sector. And for me, that was important because I had loans to pay back. And, you know, being a first generation professional, we had not had exposure to this kind of money before. And I was figuring out my life is pretty long. Like I'll probably be working for the next 30 to 50 years. So if I work in the private sector first, you know, that's a new experience for me that I haven't done before. And I can always, you know, reevaluate my career after, you know, five to 10 years and see if is, is this where I want to be afterwards? If not, you know, consider applying elsewhere. But I, I've already been in three different jobs in five years. And that's something that happens maybe fairly often in the legal industry where people are just rotating different law firms or public and private sectors. But there's not this like longevity you see, like there's like a 30-year career attorney at the same. There's going to be some movement in between those 30 years. So I, I'm, I'm always reevaluating my options. And, you know, you can always continue your public interest goal and, and love by doing pro bono work too at, while at the private law firm. So while my day-to-day work may be helping commercial clients navigate the legal system, I'm also using the firm's resources to help pro bono clients for free. For example, people who are who need access to visas. Like um, I helped a high school student get a special immigrant juvenile visa and now live in the U.S. and uh, be on the pathway to citizenship. I also helped a woman get guardianship for her granddaughter. And so these are things that you can do while using the firm's resources, you know, paying for interpreters, paying for the fees attached to all these things and, and helping other folks too. Absolutely. And I think it it could be a function of it's the law degree or it's the law profession, but it also is, I think, our generation. I think our generation would bound to have, I don't know, five to 10 career changes in our lifetime. So I I think it's, it's a little bit of both. And as someone who has also vacillated between the public and the private sector, I would argue that it makes me so much of a better candidate across, right? I'm a better candidate in the private pipeline because I have worked in the public sector and vice versa. So I, I think it's 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 actually the biggest skill set and the biggest value that I bring to the table as what we call this tri-sector leader, right? Someone who has worked in all of the three sectors, governments, nonprofits, and, and in corporate America. So as we wrap up, Sydney, I would just love to know, today you are in a different job. So if you could just explain to us what it is that you do, and maybe even get a little granular and tell us what you do on a daily basis. Sure. I, well, actually, I'm working from home <laughs> at the moment, which is actually a, a pretty good deal because the law, the field of law was not impacted that much by the pandemic, right? I continued working for my clients while from home with, you know, a laptop and a webcam, and that worked perfectly fine for the past year and a half. 
And so it's it's a very malleable market. My work last year actually focused a bit more on bankruptcy law because of the pandemic. And I learned something new by helping clients navigate bankruptcy law. And my day-to-day basis is checking emails, seeing what is on my calendar. Because my cases all depend on deadlines set by the court, I have to be aware of when my de- my internal deadlines are for writing a brief, doing the research, and asking clients for documents, reviewing those documents, because those are the pieces of evidence we're going to be using to write that brief. And sometimes it's um, emailing and calling opposing counsel just to get an agreement on on deadlines, or you know, asking for a deposition, which is a interview of a person who has information about the case. So if I am asking for a deposition of five employees of the other side, I want to know what they know. And it's about having this time-bound time. You know, like I'm, I'm already reviewing documents. I'm asking these questions of them to help me make the case for my client. That's that's kind of the, the basic skill sets you learn. But I'm also not doing this in a bubble. I have a team of people. So every case has a partner who is the the main person, the main attorney on the case, deals directly with the client, who brings in the case and says, hey, Cindy, got this case in. I want you to review the documents and kind of work it up and tell me what, what needs to be done here. I'm like, okay, well, here here's the facts as we know, and here are the gaps of information that we need to know. So we might ask for information via the depositions or asking the other side to answer questions in the Q&A format too. And then as we go on throughout the case, they sometimes last two years, you know, from the inception of the case to the very end when there's a final court judgment or final order and we work it up. And oftentimes the goal is to settle the case and not go all the way to the end of the court cycle. So that's another skill set you have to learn too is how do you position the case so that you can settle it on both sides. That's, you know, with your team, you kind of evaluate at every juncture, hey, are we in a good position here? We should ask the client if they want to settle or if they're saying, no, um, I want to continue and continue the case, you know, we'll move it along as well. That sounds a lot like what I do as a consultant. They come, they give us a case, and they say, here's what the client's trying to do. We analyze the data as it is. We analyze where the gaps are, and we go back and forth. So I I think what my takeaway here is there are very similar skill sets that I think college, if done right, should teach you that should be transferable across careers, which is, do you know how to think? Do you know how to ask the right questions? Do you do you stay extremely organized? Can you stay on top of it? Can you be proactive? Those are all things that no matter what career you choose, if you build a strong foundation on those, I think you're going to be set up for success. Here, the last thing I have for you is, do you have maybe two or three tips for our first generation audience who might be thinking, I might want to be a lawyer, I might want to go to law school? Yes, there are resources available, especially for first-generation students and first-time lawyers in their family. I like this website called For People of Color, F-O-R-P-E-O-P-L-E-O-F-C-O-L-O-R.com for peopleofcolor.org. It is a program out of California, but they provide free advice on how to apply to law school and other ways of, is this, you know, is law school for me? So they, it is a a great resource to have. And if you are interested in pursuing law, like if, you know, asking out, 
asking people you see speak at panels, even podcasts like this one, would be also a, a good resource too, because these are folks who volunteer their time to talk about a subject and they they put themselves out in the public domain. And it's perfectly fine to email them afterwards. Hey, I heard you speak at this event. Do you have time to answer questions over the phone or via Zoom? Or, you know, if you're up for, you know, meeting over coffee one day. Plenty of speakers come to campuses and there are plenty of speakers available online through virtual formats that you could, you know, look up their bio afterwards, find them on LinkedIn, and then see if they're willing to talk with you. If you expect them to say no or ignore, that's fine. That's the, what's the worst that could happen? You know, you spend five minutes of your time emailing them and, you know, didn't get a result. That's okay. But maybe the next person you email will actually reach out and say, yeah, let's let's get together. And that's really how you build your network, uh, especially if you don't know very many lawyers at all. This is where you first start. And after you, if you click with somebody, you can always ask them, hey, do you recommend anybody else I should speak to? Especially if there's a particular topic that they're not familiar with. Like, hey, actually, I want to do real estate law. Do you know any real estate attorneys? Okay, well, I've got a friend from law school who does that. Let me connect you with that person. Um, it kind of snowballs from there. And, you know, I hope whatever information you glean, you also pass it on to other people too. And that's how we grow in life. And finally, I will leave you with a quote. If your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. If your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. I just got goosebumps, Cindy. Thank you so, so much. You have been so generous with your time and all of your resources that you provided. I, on a personal level, will always be thankful to you. When I came to visit Harvard, you hosted me and you gave me the download of everything. And I don't know that I would ever be there without you. So thank you for everything you do on a personal level and for all of the other first gens out there. We thank you, thank you, and we hope you have a wonderful day. Wonderful. I'm glad to be here. Thank you all. Well, that's it, folks. I was very excited to bring you all this episode today, given that Cindy is somebody that I admire a lot and somebody that has mentored my life quite a bit. I hope that you found this episode to be extremely informative, especially the questions she asked herself before figuring out whether or not the law profession was the right track for her and how she even decided to do a joint degree, which is, I know, New for a lot of our first gens, we are often the first ones, but doing a joint degree, as Cindy mentioned, saves you one year if you are looking to acquire two skill sets. With that, we hope that you enjoy the rest of your week, and we are excited to have another conversation with another lawyer next week, and this one's a very interesting one as well, as he transfer from a law school, which is not something we hear often for first gens. So stay tuned and I look forward to chatting with y'all next week. <music>